Okay, I want to read 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verse 19 through 24. If you don't know this, I think most of you do, but if you don't know this, we're just walking through this letter of 1 John together as a church, and we've been doing this for several weeks. And the place where we land under God's sovereignty this morning is verses 19 through 24. So read this with me. 1 John 3, 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave His commandment. Now, He who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for truth. Thank you, God, for not leaving us without knowledge of you, God. Thank you for not leaving us, God, without an understanding of your ways, Lord. Thank you. Lord, help us now as we dig into this passage of Scripture that you, by your Spirit, would speak to our souls. God, we want to know you more deeply. And we want to know what it is to be a people that walks with God. So please, Lord, help us this morning. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me start by saying this. This, um, this passage of Scripture is just continuing on doing something that's been done all the way through this letter so far. It's a distinguishing between true and false conversion between true assurance of faith and a false assurance of faith. And you see that really in the first verse and the last verse. It's like bookends. Verse 19 and verse 24 in this passage. It begins and ends with this phrase. By this you know. Verse 19. By this you know you're of the truth. And then over in verse 24 to end it. By this you know that, the spirit of, that, that God abides in you. By this you know by His Spirit. You know this that He abides in you. Okay? So this whole letter has been a push toward that, this distinguishing between true and false conversion. We've talked about that a lot since we've opened up this letter together as a church. So just to give you kind of a feel, an example of what I'm talking about. You can start way back in chapter 1, verse 6. And remember, he says, if anyone says that you have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, you lie and don't practice the truth. You see that distinguishing between true and false conversion. You can bump it up a little, chapter 2, verse 3. By this you know. He says, if anyone says they know God, but don't keep His commandments, they're a liar and the truth's not in them. So you see this distinguishing between true and false conversion. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, by this we know that we are in Him. Chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It's this idea 
That these people that were leaving their church were never truly saved. They were never truly converted. They were false converts. They came under the banner of Christ in some way, in some outward form. And yet they were not really of Christ. You see it again in chapter 3 verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So over and over again, we're getting this distinguishing between true and false conversion all the way up to the last section that was taught, that Dustin taught last week. We see it in verse 14. We know that we pass from death to life. How do we know? It says, because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And so all through this letter, this is a push that we've been receiving, and we see it in our passage today, as twice, at the beginning, verse 19, at the end, verse 24, he says, by this you know that you are of the truth. By this you know that God abides in you. And I want to say a few things as we, as we get going in this particular passage and how it does this. Um, let me say this. In John's time, when he wrote this letter, this was not a new thing. Okay, this idea of true and false conversion was not a new thing uh, whenever John came around and this church came around. You can see this. You can go back into the Old Testament and you can see this exact same idea of false or fake professions of faith. I want to give you one example that was actually in my reading this week. In the book of Amos, the prophet Amos, you know, he's talking to a group of people who are very religious people. They keep the feast. And the festivals. And they sing to God. They actually sing songs. They make instruments of praise to God. They do all these outward forms of religion. And yet they had a fake profession. A false profession. And here's how Amos describes them. In chapter 5 of Amos verse 18. This is way back in the Old Testament. Listen. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You imagine that. This is a group of people that said, man, we can't wait for the day, Lord. We can't wait till it's all said and done. And all this world is through and we're with God forever. We can't wait. But he says, woe to you. To this group of people, this particular group. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is that day, the day of the Lord, to you? What good is that day to you? It will be darkness and not light. You see what he's saying to them? See, they have a false, a fake profession of faith. And they're saying, man, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. And he says, what good is it to you? And this is way back with the prophet, uh, with the prophet Amos. And I want you to see the description, the, the, the illustration that he gives to describe what this is like. To long for the day of the Lord and yet you get there and it is not good for you. He says it's like this. It will be as though a man fled from a lion... And a bear man. Or as though he went into the house. Leaned his hand on the wall. And a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Here's the idea. It's like you ran away. I got away from the lion of this world. From the lion of this, this age. I got away from it. Only to meet the bear of God's wrath. That's the illustration that's given. Or I go and I have this rest time. I'm going to lean up against the wall. I finally got away. I'm going to lean up against the wall. And he says, and then you're bitten by the snake of God's wrath. And so he's telling there's this false profession, this fake profession of faith that goes way back even into the Old Testament. And we see it all in 1 John, this letter that we're in. And then it's very, very, very common today. Amen. It's a very common thing in our culture. 
Now, as we move into this, three, three tests are given throughout this letter that help us distinguish between true and false conversion. Three tests are given. First test is the obedience test. By this you know that you know Him, that you keep His commandments. Those who truly know Christ have a heart to obey Him, a heart for His Word. Okay? The second test is a doctrinal test. And this is just, these tests are just weaved into 1 John repetitively, over and over again. The second test is a doctrinal test. Will you believe in the right things about Christ? Do you put your faith in the true Jesus that the Bible teaches us about? And then the third test, and this is a test that Dustin just walked through again here this, this past week in verses 10 through 18, is the love test, okay? It's really a more specific obedience test. If, you, if you're truly saved, you'll have a heart to obey God, and then he gives you this specific test, which is this obedience in loving of the brethren, the love, the love of the church, that you love the people of God, you love the body of Christ. This, kind, this is a, like a more specific obedience test. Um, Jonathan Edwards claimed that, that as, if you don't know, Jonathan Edwards was a, a famous theologian centuries ago. And he, was, uh, he, he believed that this religious affection of the love of the brethren was, was like the highest, of, the highest of the test that distinguishes between a true and false conversion. Okay? And I believe you got that from 1 John. When we see the obedience test, the doctrinal test, and then the more specific obedience of te test of, do you love the brethren? Do you love the church of Jesus Christ? So, John's laying out these tests in 1 John. And we know that he's doing it for at least two purposes. At least two purposes. One purpose, he wants to expose false converts. Okay, In the church that he's writing to, he's writing to this church, people are leaving this church. And as they leave, he's already said it, that they were never truly of God. They were never truly in Christ. They were never truly Christians. And so he's exposing false conversion and false converts. And the second thing he, he, he's aiming to do is to comfort the true converts at the same time. So imagine that same letter, exposing false converts and comforting the true converts. Chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things that you might know you have eternal life. Imagine the comfort that that brings. That you might know you have eternal life. So I, I long for these words of 1 John and even this section in particular to land on us with godly authority. To land on us with power. We pray for that. I know many of you have prayed that God would take this letter and use it to do a work in our church. And already we've seen fruit from God's word going in front of God's people and moving us and, and, and stirring our souls and opening our eyes. We've already seen that sort of thing. It's, it's one thing I thought about with this letter. It's kind of like this. We know that according to God's word, at the end of the age, that Jesus said He's going to separate the tares from the wheat, and the wheat are going to go. This is the true commerce. They're going to go into eternal happiness, eternal glory, eternal joy, fullness of joy with Him. And yet, for the tares in that last day, for those tares that are among the wheat, but they're not actually. We, they will be bundled up and thrown into the fire and it'll be too late for them. And it's almost like John has an aim and the Holy Spirit has an aim here. And I, in preaching these words from the Spirit, have an aim here to separate. God, let us separate the tares from the wheat before it's too late. Before the time when it's too late. Let those tares be converted and transformed into wheat and let the wheat be comforted that they are truly His. 
This is what we're going after, okay? Um, I want you to think about this. False converts being exposed and true converts being comforted under the same letter and under the same preaching is not an easy thing, right? So it goes, what tends to happen? What tends to happen? The, the, the false converts, they get some assurance that was meant to land on the true converts. And the true converts might let something disturb them that was meant to land on the false converts. And so this is the difficult thing that happens. But, but I believe since the Holy Spirit penned this letter, I believe that happened. Therefore, this is the perfect place to go to do exactly what we want to do, okay? So this is what we're going after. Okay, so, so as we move into this, okay, we're about to go right into verse 19. But I want to mention this quickly here right at the beginning. I want to mention four soul conditions that can be represented all across this room, okay? Four soul conditions. I want you to listen to them. I want you to think about where you stand. Out of these four soul conditions, where do you stand? Number one is this. Soul condition number one is this. A person who has assurance, assurance of eternal life, assurance of salvation, but it is a false assurance. That's number one. You have assurance, but it's a false assurance. In other words, you're going merrily to hell. Happily to hell. You have an assurance, but it's a false assurance. Number two is this. A person who has assurance... And rightly so. It's a biblical assurance. God has saved you. He has saved your soul. And so you have the assurance that He wants you to have. Number three is this. A person who does not have assurance of salvation. He does not have assurance. And rightly so. And rightly so because they're not saved. And I want to encourage every person here because there's, you know, it's very common when somebody begins to be disturbed in their soul and they don't have assurance that you begin to try to comfort them when they ought not to be comforted. Except with the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save their soul. I warn everybody here of being an agent of false conversion. Don't be an agent of that. So number four, soul condition number four is this. A person who does not have assurance, they don't have assurance, but they ought to. They're struggling with this condemning heart. And yet they ought to have assurance because they are a true child of God. They truly say. So where do you land on all this? Where do you land? I want you to think about that for a minute. Where do you land? Now this fourth soul condition of somebody that, that does not have assurance of salvation. Their soul is in turmoil. But they ought to have assurance because God has saved their soul. That person gets addressed in a very unique way in this passage that we're in today is the, the comfort. How to have comfort for a condemning heart. Okay? We're going to see that in our passage as we walk through it. So let's just start. Verse 19. So the heading on your study guide there will say verse 19a. And what I mean by that is the first part of verse 19. Let's start reading right there. Listen to it. And by this, we know that we are of the truth. By this. By this. So what is the this right here? By this, we know we're of the truth. So what is the this? And this points back to the previous passage in verse 10 through 18 that we went through last week. And what it expresses there in summary, it's a, it's a heart, a heart of obedience to God. A heart of obedience to God's word, especially in the area of love the brethren. Chapter 3, verse 14. By this, you know you pass from death to life, that you love the brethren. So by this you know 
that you are of the truth. So your love for the church, your relationships, loving relationships, enjoyed relationships in the body of Christ say a lot about your spiritual state before God. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 16. Look at verse 16, okay? By this we know love because He laid down His life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we're given the example of Jesus' love who laid down His life for sinners like me and you. And then He turns the corner and said, even so, we ought to love the brethren, love one another. And in verse 17 and 18, we get very, very practical. So in other words, this is not just love in general. Sometimes uh, I love all people can be an excuse for not loving anybody in particular. Understand that? It's very practical in verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongues, not just by what you say. Let us not love in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. Okay, we're talking very practical. And by this... This love of the body of Christ, this love of the church, by this you know you are of the truth, according to chapter 3, verse 19. So, ask yourself the question, do you belong to the truth? You can't read this without thinking about that. Do you know, do you belong to the truth? What are the results, according to what we just read, what are the results of somebody who truly belongs to the truth. They have a heart of, of obedience. They have a love for God's word. A heart of obedience to God's word. Specifically even in the area of love of the brethren. Is that you? Are you of the truth? Also we're going to see this as we keep going. Something else that happens some, to someone. When they're truly converted. Is they gain a more sensitive conscience. Or an awakened an awaken conscience. Okay, which is going to, and this is going to bring us right into the next verse and where we're going. So look at verse 19b. Look at it. And shall assure our hearts before him. So let's read the whole verse. By this you know that you are of the truth. By this you know you're of the truth. And shall assure your hearts before him. Let's, de let's define a couple of these terms, okay? Let's define the term heart right there. You shall assure your hearts before Him. The word heart is popularly referred to as the, the seat of the emotions. The seat of the emotions. And I think that's right. If you, if, you, if you study how John, in the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. When you look at how John talks about the heart, you see many things. If you just look up that word throughout the New Testament where John writes. And you see that John talks about the heart being hard or soft. He talks about the heart experiencing a, a trouble. It's a troubled heart. You see him talking about the heart experiencing sorrow. And the heart experiencing rejoicing. This is the seed of emotions here. Sorrow and rejoicing. And here we see the heart that experiences condemnation. Or the feelings of assurance. Okay. So this is the idea. The seed of the emotions is the heart here. And what about the term assured? Now, I love this. The word, okay. And by this you shall assure your hearts before Him. The word assure is persuade. So to assure your heart is to persuade your heart. Is to, is to, to put your heart to rest. 
It's literally to, to tranquilize it. It's the tranquility of the heart. To, to bring your heart to a place of peace. It is well with my soul. It's this kind of idea. Okay? It's to put your heart to rest. It's to persuade your heart. God wants us to know in a felt way that we belong to Him. He wants us to know that. So by this, you know your other truth and shall assure your hearts before Him. He wants you to know it in such a way that it's a felt reality for you. If you're truly converted, if you're truly in Christ. Now, why would we need to assure our hearts? Okay, by this you know that your other truth and shall assure your heart before Him. Why would you need to assure your heart? And the answer is because of the condemning heart. Look at verse 20 right here. It says, for if our heart condemns us. If our heart condemns us. So we're talking about the condemning heart here. This is when your conscience condemns you. It's when your heart, your own heart finds fault with you. It's when I thought everything was fine. I thought it was okay. I thought my eternity was secure. But now I'm anxious about this. I feel like something's not right. I don't feel like I'm okay in the sight of God. This is the condemning heart. So question. Do you personally know the struggle of a condemning heart? Do you know that? Have you ever felt the struggle of having a condemning heart? And whether you answer yes or no to that, I want to put four questions before you here, okay? Whether you say yes or no. Yes, I have experienced the, the struggle of a condemning heart. Or no, I've never experienced the struggle of a, a conscience that is bothering me, a condemning Heart. Let me put four questions before you. The first one is this. And this is assuming you have experienced the struggle of a condemning heart. If you have, is your condemning heart a result of an awakened, sensitive conscience that needs to be put to rest? In other words, is your, your struggle with a condemning heart, is it because God has saved you and your conscience has been cleansed and it's been renewed and now, you're, now you have to put... That conscience, you have to put that condemning heart to rest. You have to persuade it. And this passage of Scripture is going to tell you how to do that. At least one way how to do that. Second question is this. Or if you have a condemning heart, if you struggle with a condemning heart, is, it, is your condemning heart the result of the Holy Spirit trying to awaken you from a false assurance? Because you realize it could be both, Right? Is this condemning heart, this struggle with a condemning heart, this, this conscience that is bothered, is it, rather than just a sensitive conscience, is it the Spirit of God trying to wake, awaken you to the reality, you are not alive, you are dead. Is that what it is? And if it is, I plead with you, don't ignore this. Whether you are truly saved or not, you cannot. The answer is not to ignore the condemning heart. Do not ignore it. There's ways you can do that. You can distract yourself till you're blue in the face. You can distract yourself with TV and internet and everything going on around you. All the things in this world. And you can distract, distract, distract. And I'm pleading with you. If you've ever felt the struggle of a condemning heart, you cannot ignore it. You cannot ignore it. Question number three is this. And this is assuming you've never, you don't struggle with a condemning heart. If you lack, if you lack a condemning heart, is it because you are in a good place with God and you rest in hope that He has saved your soul and you know for sure that you are of the truth? And if so, I praise God for that. 
But listen to the fourth question. If you lack a condemning heart, is it because you are dead to the things of God? And therefore you are blind to spiritual realities. And since you are dead, you feel nothing of the conviction of sin. Is that the reason? Do you see how there can be different reasons you have a condemning heart? And I want you to ask yourself, where do you land on all of this? Where are you at in these things? Now, before we move on, I think there's something beautiful we need to see in verse 19. And here it is. When I read this verse, verse 19, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Here's what I'm, fl- I'm flooded with thankfulness. That God wants us to have assurance. God wants us to have hearts that are at rest. Persuaded hearts. God wants that for His children. Those who are truly in Christ. Your assurance, if you're truly in Christ, your assurance glorifies Him. It brings Him praise and honor. It shows Him to, him to be a good Father. It shows Him to be a trustworthy Father when you have assurance before Him. So He wants you to have assurance, but He wants your assurance to be biblically anchored. He wants it to be rightly anchored. And here's what I mean. Imagine there's a rope hanging off the side of a cliff. And you are fully assured that that rope will hold you on the side of a cliff. Only thing you don't realize is it is not rightly anchored on the other side. And so full of assurance, you give yourself to it only to find out you fall. Because it's not rightly anchored. God wants you to have a rightly anchored biblical assurance. Now, let me talk for just a second about wrong ways. Because this, this passage is going to talk about ways to come to this rightly anchored biblical assurance. But let's, let's talk about wrong ways to find assurance. Wrong ways, okay? Wrong way number one is this. Look into some past experience. Some past experience, and I'm because of that past experience, I'm fine. I'm okay before God. I'm right in this sight because of that past experience, that, that emotion I felt back then, or that prayer that I prayed back then, or that time that I started going to church back then. That past experience, it, it, it is wrongly, it's not grounded, it's not anchored, it's, not, it's no reason to have assurance. There are many people that have had a past experience that are going to bust hell wide open. And there's many people that are true converts that struggle and cannot find some past experience to link it to. So you cannot link it to some past experience. Number two, wrong ways to assurance. Number two is this. It's purely emotion driven. It can't be purely emotion driven. Okay, just because of some feeling I had or have now, I must be okay. I must be assured. I remember a guy one time when I was in college that was struggling with a condemning heart. Okay? Struggling. But I don't think he was struggling as a believer with a condemning heart. I think he was struggling as an unbeliever. And his conscience was bothering him. He said, I've been in church my whole life, but I don't think that I'm saved. What do I do? And I was praising God for his work and his life and giving him the gospel of Jesus. And then another preacher comes along and says, hey man, just the fact that you're worried about that means you're fine. You see the problem with that? It's emotion-based assurance. Just because you have that emotion, just because you care about that must mean that you're okay. So it can't be rooted in that. Well, what about a comparison? Number three, a comparison with other people that are more sinful than you. You look up and say, well, I'm not as sinful as that person or that person. I never killed anybody. I'm not a jail. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm assured in my eternity. And that's no reason to have assurance. Or another one, presuming upon God's mercy. 
God's merciful. He'll forgive me. I'm fine because He's a forgiving God. Listen, God is forgiving. And yet the path to destruction is broad and many go that way. People still go to hell even though our God is merciful. Even though our God is forgiving. You cannot presume upon His mercy alone to find your assurance. Or what about presuming upon His sovereignty? You ever heard that? Hey, only God knows, so we don't have to worry about that. Only God knows about where you're going to be for eternity, so don't even worry about that. Wrong. God is sovereign and God does know all things. But He calls you, He wants you to come to a place of knowing. By this you know the children of God and the children of the devil. is manifest, He says in this letter. He wants you to see clearly. And the last one I'll say is this. The last one I'll say is this. Morality. Just your, your morality cannot be the ground in which you base your assurance. Well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I've kind of earned my way in here, earned my way into heaven. I've done, I'm doing pretty good in this life, therefore I'm fine. That's called a works-based salvation. And many, many people go to hell saying, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many signs and wonders in your name? And they go to hell. So it can't be rooted in this. So, two, so let me speak for a moment to the, the, the true convert in the room. The true convert in the room. This struggling with a condemning heart. Listen to me. You're struggling with a condemning heart. Listen to me. You must persuade your heart. You have to persuade your heart according to verse 19. And you must persuade it in the right manner. Look at what he says. And by this we know we're of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Persuade our hearts before him. You have to persuade your heart. True convert. And you have to do it in the right manner. Let me give you kind of an overview of what the right manner to persuade your heart is. And then I'll show you where that's at in this text of Scripture, okay? Here's the overview. There's an inward gaze and there's an outward gaze. I want you to think about it like that. You have an inward gaze and an outward gaze. The inward gaze is self-examination. Is God at work in me? This is what First John's been doing all the way through. That those who are truly saved, God does a work in their lives. Therefore, you going after persuading your heart of assurance of salvation as an inward gaze. And saying, is God at work in my life? As First John describes, He would be. And then the outward gaze is something like this. You look away from yourself. You don't look at yourself anymore. You look away, outward gaze, to Christ Jesus, to God Almighty and His promises, to Jesus' work at the cross and in His resurrection when He died for sinners, rose from the grave to save those who would come to Him. You look at His promises, His sure, solid promises in His Word that always come to pass. And this is the outward gaze. The inward gaze is self-examination. The outward gaze is looking to Christ and to His Word, okay? Now let me show you that in this text, okay? So let's, let's start with the inward gaze. You see it right here? In verse 19 when He says, By this, by this, not only does He say, By this we know we're of the truth, but He says, By this, this, we shall assure our hearts, persuade our hearts before. So again, what is the this? And whatever the this is, this is how we will persuade our hearts. And the this is, is in verse 19. Remember what it is. It's a heart for God's word. A heart of obedience towards God's word. Especially in the area of loving the brethren. Right? And by this. 
As you gaze inwardly. So the first thing you do is you observe. Has God worked this in my life? You inwardly gaze. You say, is God at work in this area? This obedience to His Word. This love for the church of Jesus. And by this you can persuade your heart. Yes, God is at work in me. Unless you're disqualified. And then also, not only would you do the observation... But you would persuade your heart by the actual obedience of it. The actual doing of it. Think, think about how practical it gets. Again, remember verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed in truth. We're talking very practical. We're talking about get your hands dirty. Get your hands dirty and love the body of Christ. Love the people of God. Remember like Jesus was saying in Matthew 25. He's going to the people that were to receive the kingdom. And here's how he described them. Because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. He said, when we do that? He said, whenever you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. It's this idea of getting your hands dirty. And as you obey in this loving, not just in word, but in deed and in truth, you go after assuring your heart, persuading your heart before God. And simultaneously, it convicts and confronts the false convert. So this is the inward gaze. Let's go to the outward gaze. It's found in verse 20. Read verse 20 with me again. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. I love this. So this is the outward gaze here, okay? This is look to God who knows all things even more than your heart. Look to God. He is greater than then you're condemning heart. Look to His Word. Look to His truth. His promises. Look to God. Who is greater than your heart. Here's an example of doing that. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 and 2. Remember that passage of Scripture? 1 John 2 1 and 2. Where He says, If anyone sins. Think about it. If anyone sins. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. So if anyone sins, and here's the outward gaze, here's the outward gaze. You begin to look to God in Christ and what He has done. He's the propitiation for our sins. The wrath of God is supposed to fall on us. And He steps in as the sacrifice, as the substitute to take our place under God's wrath. He is our propitiation. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with him, with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. This is the outward, outward gaze. I want you to think about the outward gaze and the idea of, uh, or the truth of justification. Justification is that idea that here we are as sinners before God. And everyone who has faith in Christ, you know that you should be condemned. You know that by your actions. And yet God justifies you. He speaks something about you and says, that person is righteous because Christ took the sin onto himself and planted his righteousness onto that person. And now God says, righteous. Now you think about that justification. You think about that justification for just a moment. Think about it. In Romans chapter 8 verse 33, listen, listen. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Not even your own heart. Not even your own condemning heart can condemn you. God is greater than your heart. It's God who has said about you. Just in my sight. Righteous in my sight. Because of the blood of Jesus. That's a glorious reality. Therefore, that means regardless of how you feel. 
Regardless of that condemning heart and how you feel, if you're in Christ, God has justified you. Let me give you another picture. It's the idea of adoption, the truth of adoption. If you're here and you're in Christ, you have been adopted. Think about that. You've been adopted to the family of God. And you can look to God as Abba Father now. Adoption. I want you to think about this. What if Elias, little adopted Elias, what if one day, you just imagine, he, one point in his life, he looks up at his dad and he says, but daddy, I don't feel like I'm a part of this family. I just don't feel like I'm a part of this family. Here's adopted Elias. And you imagine daddy Reese with tears in his eyes. And he says, it doesn't matter how you feel, son. You are mine and I'm yours. When you weep, I weep. When you rejoice, I rejoice. When your heart's broken, my heart breaks. You are mine and nothing can change me. You imagine that. The adoption, regardless of the condemning heart, even though your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart who has adopted you and justified you if you're here and you're in Christ. That's glorious. I want you to think about, think about your heart as the lower court. You know you have lower courts and higher courts, right? Lower court and the supreme court, right? So I want you to think about your heart as the lower court. Sometimes your heart's right, Sometimes your heart's wrong. When your heart condemns you, sometimes it's right. You need to feel condemned and come to Christ. And sometimes when your heart condemns you, it is wrong. It is speaking the opposite of what the Almighty has said about you. So it's a lower court. So when the lower court of your heart begins to condemn you, you don't ignore it, but you appeal to the higher court who is God Almighty and the truth is found in His Word. Okay? Think about these promises. Let me read one promise to you here. This is appealing to the higher court. Romans 8.38 For any Christian here whose heart condemns them, listen. I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You imagine letting Philippians 1.6 land on you. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Let the promise land if you're a Christian here struggling with a condemning heart. So, to the true convert, or uh, in verse 21, more affectionately, John says, Beloved. So, beloved, beloved, listen, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Alright, look at verse 21. Verse 21 through 22a is the first part of verse 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Now, why should a Christian desire... To have a heart at rest. Why should a Christian desire to have an assurance. A, a persuaded heart. And ultimately it's because this glorifies God. It glorifies your Savior. But we're given two reasons here. Two reasons that a Christian should desire that. In the verses that we just read. Okay, What we're seeing in these verses. Is the fruit. We see the fruit of a heart. That is, that is at rest in the presence of God. Number one, the fruit number one is this, confidence toward God. And number two is fruitful praying. 
fruitful praying. Listen to the verse again. If our heart does not condemn us, that's a heart at rest. That's a heart tranquil before God. Assured. If our heart does not condemn us, we have, number one, confidence toward God. And number two, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. So let's start with confidence toward God. Think about this. This is the confidence of a son toward his father. This is not a confidence that's rooted in pride or arrogance as if you deserve to stand before the living God. This is a confidence that is deeply rooted in the love of a father, the love of our God, who has shown himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. And through his promise, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, that you can trust him, that you can go to him like a son confident in his father. Can he discipline you? Yes. Can he be displeased with you? Absolutely. But listen to me. This is the discipline and the displeasure of a father who says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I'll love you always. And you can go to him with confidence. I want you to think about how glorious of an existence that is. To have confidence before God. To have the condemning heart has been silenced. To live and walk in absolute assurance that you belong to Him. You're safe in His presence. It's a glorious reality. A glorious existence. It's, it's what that the blind lady, that, that old sweet blind lady was talking about. Do you remember it when she said, Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. This is what we're talking about. Now, I hope you got a taste of how unimaginable that is. That sinners like us could stand before God and not be scared half to death that you're going to go to hell forever. Will we tremble? Absolutely. But Psalm 2 calls it rejoicing with trembling. It's the fear of a, that you get from a loving Father who is glorious, like, like standing before a mighty mountain that makes you tremble. So yes, you tremble in fear before Him, but there's a trust and a confidence before this God because you know who you are in His sight. <clears throat> confidence toward God. The second fruit of a heart at rest is fruitful praying. I want you to imagine. Imagine what happens... When your heart is persuaded that you belong to Him. And you begin to call out to Him. Abba Father, and you cry out to Him. You imagine what happens when you begin to do that. And here's what it says in verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. So true Christian, let that sink in for a minute. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Now what do people normally want to do when they read a verse like that? Usually the first thing people want to do with a statement like that is to begin to tell, I want to tell, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean if you ask for a Lamborghini, you get it, right? You start getting this, this is what it doesn't mean. I don't want to do that. What does it mean? What does it mean? Listen, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Here you are, fully assured that you belong to God. And with a childlike confidence, you come before your father in prayer. Listen, he hears you. He listens to you. 
He responds, what fools we would be not to go to Him, to our Father in prayer with this kind of word. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. How foolish we'd be to go to Him in prayer and not trust Him that He does this. This is not the only time it says this in the Scripture. You know that, right? You can't wiggle around this. Listen, John, the, the writer of 1 John, he was absolutely obsessed with this kind of promise. Let me just give you promises from John. This is just from John. John 14, 13. He records Jesus saying this. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Don't excuse it away. Walk in it. It's open for you, child of God. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. John 16, 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. See, they were doing the same thing we tend to do, right? Why are you not asking him? Listen. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. One more. First John chapter 5 verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Do you know how amazing that is? He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Do you think the Apostle John lived a life of calling out to God in prayer and seeing God answer those prayers? Absolutely he did. And so the question is, child of God in the room, have you let the enemy deceive you that that doesn't apply to you? That you cannot call out to the living God and stand on these words? It says, whatever we ask, whatever we ask, we receive from him. I want you to think about this. God, just think about prayer for a second, okay? This, whatever we ask, think about it. God has ordained in His mercy, in His gracious mercy under His sovereignty, God has ordained that through the prayers, the childlike prayers of His people to cause things to come into existence that would not come into existence have you not prayed. Do you realize that? Do you know how amazing that is? Let me give you a verse for that. James 4, 2. You do not have because you do not ask. So you don't have something is not coming to existence in the universe because you didn't cry out to the living God for that. Now, yes, that fits under sovereignty. Yes, that fits under everything about the character of God. No doubt. But listen to me. That means God has ordained that through the prayers of his people, the childlike prayers of his people, that things would be caused to come into existence in this universe that would not otherwise. Now, you imagine not partaking of that now. One preacher said this, he said, if you do not avail yourself to the privilege of causing things to come into existence in this universe through the means of childlike prayers to a loving father that otherwise would not come into existence, it must be said that you have lost your mind. It's foolish. Here it is, open to you. You don't come through that door. And I believe that's the tactic of Satan with the condemning heart. I believe that's a scheme 
of the devil. I want you to think about it. Just think about the scheme of, of Satan. Here you are. True, and I'm talking to true Christians here. True Christians. Your heart begins to condemn you. And you do not fight it by persuading your heart. You don't fight it. You just sit in the condemnation of your heart. And, and you, feel, you feel like you don't belong to God. You don't see Him as your Father before whom you come in confidence. And therefore you do not bombard the throne of grace with universe changing prayer. Don't you see the tactic of the enemy? Don't you see the designs of the devil? Don't you see it in that? And I pray that us, we at Grace Community Church will be a people with hearts persuaded, coming before Him as a Father with confidence in prayer and watching God do what He says in His Word. Go to verse 22. 22b, second part of verse 22, into verse 23. Listen. Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Let, let me actually start at the beginning of 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Here it is. Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment. That we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Okay, what's up with these verses, okay? Is this saying that the way that we merit and earn answered prayers and access to God is by doing good and doing things, obeying God and doing things that are pleasing His sight? Is that what it's saying? This is how we earn access into the presence of God. <clears throat> and I would say absolutely not. That would run opposite of everything else you read through the Bible that speaks about how we get access into the presence of God. It's not by our own works. It's not by what we do. In fact, all our works are like filthy rags in His sight. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ Jesus suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Jesus coming to die for us, Jesus risen again, is our, is our merit, our access into His presence into, and into the prayer room. This is the access. So what does this mean? Verse 22b is giving us the condition. It's not the merit. Okay, you merit access to the presence of God. But rather, this is the condition in which we experience confidence towards God and fruitful prayer. This is the soil in which, the soil, okay, in which we experience. Okay, so... Obey God and do those things that are pleasing in His sight is the soil in which we experience confidence toward God and fruitful praise. This has already been said, right? Because He just said a moment ago that if your heart does not condemn you, so if you have a persuaded heart, as we've already said that, why do you get a persuaded heart? Well, part of it is self-examination. I see that God is working in me to obey Him. God is working in me to do the things pleasing in His sight. Specifically towards the love of the brethren. And when I see that, it gives me this confidence toward God. And, that, and whatever I ask Him, I receive those things. And so this is the condition that we see in 22b. This is the condition under which we have confidence toward God and answered prayers. So I want you to think about this. 22b tells us the general sense. Obedience to God and do what's pleasing in His sight. Verse 23 begins to make it more specific. It's almost like it's a parenthetical statement. You can put a parenthesis around 
verse 23. As in, so, so for those who obey God, do the things pleasing in the sight, parentheses, and this is his commandment. That you believe on, the, on his son Jesus Christ, in the name of his son Jesus Christ, and love one another as God has given commandment. Now, something about verse 23. Notice it says, his commandment. Singular. So you think one command is coming, and then what proceeds seems like two commands. Believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So what does this mean? This clearly means the same thing that John's been doing the whole way through. That these things are always merged together. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love for the church. Belief in the Lord, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love of the body of Christ. Love of the brethren. These things are inseparable right here. We see that very clearly in verse 23. So, true children of God are those who keep His commandments and do the things pleasing in His sight. And more specifically, true children of God are those who continue on and trust in Jesus and this commandment of love one another. The love of the brethren. So, first thing you have to do with that knowledge is this. You have to make an observation. Do you observe in your life... Verse 22b through 23. And what I mean is, do you observe in your life a heart to keep His commandments? To do the things pleasing in His sight? To love the brethren? To trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see that in your life? And if so, persuade your heart with this. True Christian, persuade your heart with this. And the second thing you got to do is go after. Go after. Not just to make an observation. But go after this sort of obedience. Keep His commandments. Live a life that pleases Him. Trust Christ. Love the brethren. And in doing this, the true converts will gain a confidence. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. So, here's what I'm going to do. Before moving to the last verse. About to move to verse 24, last verse. But I want to mention one more thing that we can glean from verse 22 and 23. Just listen to this phrase. Your life of obedience, your life of obedience, specifically the love of the brethren, your life of obedience will directly affect the effectiveness of your prayer. Your life of obedience, specifically in this practical, get your hands dirty, love one another, will directly affect the effectiveness of your prayer. Now, let, now, let me say this again, okay? Your obedience and your practical love does not earn your way into the presence of God by any means. That's Christ Jesus and Him crucified. But obedience, faith, and love of the brethren is the soil in which effective praying springs out of. So think about it like this. 3.18, don't love in word and tongue only, but love in deed and truth. This practical love of the brethren, this practical we do what's pleasing in His sight. That is the soil, the soil in which this grows out of. We have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask from Him, we receive from Him. So maybe, so I want you to think about this. If that's true, if that's true, then maybe if you're not experiencing God as the prayer hearing Prayer answering father that he is. Maybe it's because you're not truly his child. Maybe so. But let me give you another option too. 
And that's the case many times, no doubt. But if you're not experiencing God as the prayer-hearing, prayer-answering Father that He is, maybe it's because He's calling you into a radical obedience to Him and a get-your-hands-dirty love of the people around you that actually says, I need God. I need prayer. You don't need prayer to watch TV all day. You get the point? You don't need you don't need you don't need prayer to do a mundane nothing life that doesn't try to serve God. But if you have high things in mind, like I want to see God Almighty glorified in all the earth, I want to win lost souls. I want to see the body of Christ built up and love my brethren. And I see the sin in me, and I want to kill that sin. When those are your goals, you need prayer. You need God. You need help. So maybe God is calling you into that. Let me give you an example of that. Proverbs 21.13 says this. Proverbs 21.13. It says, Whoever shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. You see, this affects this. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. So maybe if you're not experiencing this, crying out to God and being heard by him as a prayer answering father. This is what he does. That's his promise. Whatever you ask in my name, that I'll do. Maybe if you're not experiencing that's because this is not happening. Listen, listen to this verse. In Isaiah 58, I want to call you into this. In Isaiah 58, main verse I want to read is verse 9. Listen. Then, so something happens before, we're going to read it in a minute. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Man, don't you want that? Doesn't that sound like a life of and whatever we ask him, we receive from him. And ain't that what that sounds like? Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Well, what's the, what's the prerequisite here? What is it? Look at verse 6. Is this not the fast that I've chosen? To imagine you living a life of this. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free. That you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And that you bring into your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked that you cover him. You see this life and not hide yourself from your own flesh. And if you do that, listen. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. So my exhortation to us is go. Go, radical obedience. Get your hands dirty and watch God as you... Get your hands dirty in practical love of the brethren. Watch God show Himself strong as the Father who hears prayer. Watch Him do it. I believe He will. <clears throat> Last verse. Verse 24. Now, He who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now this, this last verse of the section kind of serves as a, as a summary statement. But it gives a, a slight yet very, very important added detail. Okay, summary statement, but a very important added detail. I say it's a summary statement because of this. By this we know at the beginning of the section. And then it's capped off. By this we know 
in verse 24. This is the summary statement. It's the same general idea, the same language of those who abide in God are, are, are of God. Those who keep His commandments are those who abide in God. It's the same sort of language that we see here, okay? Now, here's the added detail. Look at verse 24. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him. We've heard that before, right? We've come through the letter of 1 John, and we've heard abides in him. He who keeps his commandments abides in God. But here's the added detail that we haven't heard yet. And he in him, and God in him. Now, we're not just talking about us abiding in God. We're talking about God abiding in us. And then the next part says, and by this we know that He abides in us. This is the added detail. Not just us abiding in Him, but He, God Almighty, abiding in His people. And we know this by the Spirit whom He's given us, okay? So I want you to think about how, how this is. Now this, this is breathtaking, right? This is breathtaking. Did that just say... Not only we abide in God, but did that just say, here it is, breathtaking, God abides in us by His Spirit? Is that what that just said? Think about that for a minute. Are you truly a child of God? Do you trust in the real, living Jesus of the Scriptures? Have you passed the obedience test and the doctrinal test? Have you passed that? Is it, is it true? Are you really a child of God? If so, listen. God abides in you. Let that sink in. God lives in you. We've heard it said throughout this letter that those who truly abide in God... Keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing Him. We've heard that said. And that ought to make complete sense to you at this point as we've come through 1 John. That those who abide in God keep His commandments and do the things pleasing in His sight. But here's something, a new truth, that should make even more sense to you. Okay? That those in whom God abides have a heart to keep His commandments and do the things pleasing in His sight. Because when God in, invades a person, they can't stay the same. Doesn't that make total sense? And so for everybody that's had faith in Christ, God came to abide in them by His Spirit. It makes sense that every person who's truly had faith in Christ would be changed, would be transformed into His image. Continually. So it's a glorious thought. When you were first converted, if you're here and you're in Christ, when you were first converted, whether it was at a young age or, or, or whether it was more recently, either way, something happened to you. The Spirit of Almighty God came to indwell you. That happened. Now, most of you probably didn't know it. You just know something happened. Man, I'm changing. I don't know what's going on. My desires are changing. Stuff's happening. But listen, this is what happened. The Spirit of God has come so let's dig a little bit deeper into this phrase right here. Last phrase. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. The Spirit of God at work in your life is evidence that you belong to Him. Let me give you proof of this Spirit of God dwelling in you. Let these verses drive you to worship. Here it is. John chapter 7, verse 39. Listen to this. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, 
whom those believing in Him would receive. Did you hear that? Those believing in Him would receive the Spirit of God. That's glorious. Look at John 14. Verse 16 and 17. Just listen. Let this sink in. Jesus says, I will pray the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. <clears throat> what about Ephesians? Excuse me, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. I got many here. I just want to give you just a few. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, are you converted or you're a son of God? Listen, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Ephesians 1.13 says the same thing, that those who believe in Christ have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So this is the proof. And I want you to think of how glorious that is. This is, the, this is a reason that repeatedly John keeps saying that those who truly have faith in Christ, who are truly converted, they are being transformed into the image of Christ. And specifically in this area of the love of the brethren, they're being transformed. And why does it say that? Because the Spirit of God indwells those who are in Christ. So let me end with something that I think should be encouraging to every single true believer in the room. If these things are true, because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart. The crowd out of the Father. If that's true, then here's a question. Is there any hope that you would be transformed into the likeness of Christ? Absolutely. This is the Spirit's work in you, right? Is there any hope that, that you could get past that sin? That sin that you keep going back to, that you can kill it? Is there any hope for that? Absolutely. This is the Spirit of God's work in you. Is there any hope that you can grow in your knowledge of God's Word? Is there any hope that you can grow in your knowledge of Christ? Absolutely there is. Because this is the Spirit of God at work in you. Illuminating. This is who Jesus is. Is there any hope that you can grow in your love for the church, your love for the brethren, your love for one another, to get your hands dirty? Not just word and tongue, but deed and truth. Is there any hope that God can grow you in that? Absolutely. It's the Spirit of God's work in you to do that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would assure every condemning heart, God, that ought to be persuaded and assured. And God, for those... Condemning hearts that don't know you, God. I pray, Lord, that you would assure them by saving their soul, Lord. Open their eyes to the glories of Christ. And God, for those who feel nothing and never have a conviction of sin, God, I pray you would awaken that conscience, Lord. And by your Spirit, you would bring the conviction that would bring them to you. God, I pray that your word would land on your people, Lord, and you would help us to be doers of it. In Jesus' name, amen.